There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Now, getting out of your comfort zone, taking on larger and larger roles, means increasing your level of power within the organization. And that probably sounds pretty good to you. However, there are some dark sides that come with this increased power. And these can be stumbling blocks. So we want to talk about three of these particular challenges that come with increased power. One is coping with the increased demands of making decisions across much broader areas of the business. The second is getting comfortable with the power that you now have and knowing how to use it effectively. And three is managing that ever-present self-doubt, or we're going to say embracing power up, out, and in. So with me today is Ron Carucci. Ron's a consultant with more than 25 years experience working with CEOs and senior executives in all sorts of organizations from Fortune 50s to startups and all in the pursuit of transformational change. His work has taken him to 20 different countries and four continents. He's worked with some of the world's most influential CEOs and executives on issues from strategy to organization to leadership. He's been part of large-scale merger integrations and the subsequent cultural change initiatives and redesign for organizations that come with that. Now, in the last couple of years, Ron has spent the time exploring his passion for ushering in the next generation leaders and helping organizations create a multi-generational workplace, as well as helping these new leaders discover their voice and leadership strength. Now, if that's not enough, Ron is the author or co-author of eight books. The most recent best-selling one is called Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives with colleague Eric Hansen. A couple of others, The Value-Creating Consultant, Relationships That Enable Enterprise Change, Leadership Divided, What Emerging Leaders Need and What You Might Be Missing, and We Could Go On. His clients are a dream list, Citibank, Corning, Hershey Company, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Deutsche Bank, Gates Corporation, ConAgra, McDonald's, Starbucks, Microsoft, Cadbury, Miller Brewing, Johnson & Johnson, and we could list dozens of others. Ron, welcome to the show. Wanda, it's so great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. I, it's great pleasure. I read a list like your client list, and I go, oh my goodness, there have to be some great stories in that. So I am looking forward to hearing your experiences. So let's start. You know, I want to start with one of the challenges that I see is key for leaders, particularly when people are transitioning into roles that are out of their comfort zone. And for me, that's about learning to cope with the breadth of the role. Something you call altitudinal discomfort. So what do you mean? And tell us why you think that's so important. Well, you know, uh, Wanda, one of the things that's so interesting about leaders when they rise up to bigger jobs is they're so unprepared for some of the realities that come with that. First of all, your life now plays out on a jumbotron, right? Everything you do and say is far more publicly seen, far more likely for attributional, misattribution, 
and being misunderstood. Um, I tell clients, just pretend that there's a megaphone strapped to your mouth 24-7 and that everything you do and say is amplified. You can't walk. There's no such thing as small talk anymore. You can't go in the elevator and just say hello without somebody attaching meaning to it. And so you're being concocted, right? There are, there are distortions of you. There are versions of you out there, many of which you have no control over. And for many leaders, that is so disorienting. Um, you can prepare for it, but... For many leaders who don't know that it's coming and they just want to be themselves, they don't appreciate that when your leadership extends to a much broader reach over the organization, including to you know, different geographies or people who you don't see on a regular basis or down through multiple levels, you don't have the luxury of just being you in any way you want. But, you know, Ron, we talk so much about being authentic and the importance of being an authentic leader and being yourself and being true to your values. How do you square that with the fact that every word you say is over-interpreted in some way? It's a great question, Wanda. And what I tell leaders is it's not about hiding yourself, right? Your humanity, your weaknesses, your vulnerability are your greatest assets to building that credibility. What you have to be mindful of, though, is, and it's not being hypervigilant, which many leaders become, and then they shut down, but it's being mindful that your messaging, your words, your decisions, um, are being scrutinized across multiple cultural boundaries or multiple functional boundaries. So it's being thoughtful about the stakeholders you're trying to influence and stepping back and asking yourself, how could this be misinterpreted? How could it be misperceived? In what ways might somebody um, hear this in a way I don't intend? And then what I tell leaders is lead out loud. Be more thoughtful about how you position. And start with sentences like, now you might, be te- you might be tempted to hear this this way, or you might wonder if this is what I'm meaning, but let me tell you what I do mean. And, and nip in the bud or head off at the pass um, places where you know you might be triggering somebody, places where you know you may be surfacing past wounds or past leadership failures. So it's actually a chance to be more authentic and more honest with your messaging, not less, but remembering that there are filters through which who you are will go through, and you can't control them all, so letting go of what you can control, but certainly heading off at the pass any misattributions that you know, your messaging, your decisions, your actions might hit along the way. Okay. It reminds me of uh, one of the executives, or a couple of the CEOs that I've worked with, comment on some aspects about their dress that gets picked up and then starts to have significance. And my favorite one is a CEO who said, you know, it has meaning whether I wear tassel loafers or tie-ups into the office in the day. And that's what you're talking about, people interpreting what small, strange things might mean. Yep. And what's important, that's a great example, and I've heard countless others um, of misattribution. Also, the fake attribution, the ones where it's Bill said, Joe said, uh, Susan said, um, the name dropping, and the clients will look at me in great chagrin saying, I never said it. I never said anything like it. But what that's telling you is that you're depositing yourself into an information-starved vacuum, right? People only have a need to make up what they don't know when they don't know enough. So that means that there are likely other systems around you who are not engaging your people, keeping them informed, cascading down decisions in a way that is meaningful enough where they no longer feel the need to make up the rest. And so if you're being misattributed to or misunderstood or, or, or stuff made up about you that is so far-fetched and you hear people saying, oh, my gosh, he's got the tie shoes on today, the wingtips means he's making a deal, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
it, that's that's a symptom of a bigger problem. Don't just fix the, the dress code. You know, fix the vacuum that your shoes are being are walking into. Okay. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. All right, so you talk about when you're in these roles to recognize that you're on a jumbotron so that everything you're saying is going to be amplified. Hello in the elevator has meaning. That you can't hide, that it is a time to build your credibility with the weaknesses and vulnerabilities, but being mindful about how those things can be scrutinized. Reading out loud so that people, you can say to people, you might be tempted to say, think this, but here's what I really mean. Um, and you can't control all those filters and you get more information. Any other advice for managing this breadth in a better way? Um, one of the things that's really important to do is if, if you've risen up to a broader perch in your organization through your own organization, um, don't uh, underestimate how difficult the relationships you already have have been reformulated. So people who were your direct reports now are no longer near you, but still want to be close to you. People who were your peers are now your direct reports. People who were your bosses are now your peers. Those are, those are requirements for new contracts. You have to sit down with those people and have preemptive conversations about how, how are the boundary conditions different now? How, how is how we relate to each other need to change uh, and in what way? What can you expect from me in terms of information? Because, because often you'll see somebody get promoted and people who were their direct reports now think, okay, our guy's in, now we get our resources. Or um, now that he's got all this power, I can get my promotion. And, and so you have all these expectations of your influence that are, are you know, ridiculous, but people will expect it nonetheless. People who were your bosses are now, now look at you as competitors for the next job. And so, you know, they, they used to look at you as a fair-haired girl or the fair-haired boy. Now they see you as a competitor, and suddenly the information flow dries up. So recognizing that, you know, you feel like an alien in your own land sometimes, what that's telling you is that you need to recontract, is sit with those relationships and understand what role do they now play in your success, and more importantly, what role do you play in theirs. And recontract those relationships, reestablish the boundary conditions for what information gets shared, what information doesn't, what's permissible, how we socialize at lunch or after work, um, what might need to shift for that because people will attach meaning that isn't there, and have honest conversations about those relationships and how you want to maintain them, but how they need to change. Right. I've always been struck both in my own experience as well as lots of people I've coached that you have a relationship and a level of trust with somebody built over years and you take a promotion and suddenly that trust is not the same as it was before because the dynamics in the relationship have now changed. The power has changed. So if we're starting this, um, I, you know, people ask me this all the time, how do I do this? What do I say to people who used to be my peers and now they're reporting to me? How do you script that conversation for recontracting? Yeah, so I, I, again, you know, uh, genuine honesty is really important by simply saying, well, look, we've known each other for 10 years. Our relationship just got a change put to it. I, have, I now have this new role. Um, I'd like to know what your expectations are. Tell me what you're looking for. Tell me what I, how I can be helpful to you. And then I need to tell you how you can be helpful to me. And so start by first soliciting and seeing if there are any misassumptions or uh, expectations of you for someone who was a peer who's now a direct report. Um, it's especially important to say, look, Bill, let's be honest. I know you wanted this job, too. You didn't get it. So you may resent me for having it. Let's talk about how that's going to go. I, I still want to advocate for your career and help you, uh, 
But if you're going to sit in this role and resent the fact that you didn't get the job and I did, that's going to make it difficult for us to work together. How do you want to do this? Right? So it's just putting out there on the table what you already know to be true or what might be lurking beneath the surface that's, that's true. And, and, and reestablishing expectations. Don't make promises you can keep, but, but let people know, you know, what, kind of, what can they expect from you as a boss? How do you tend to commit to their development and their careers? Um, how do you want to hear their frustrations and their ideas? Um, how, and how don't you? You know, when don't you want input? How do you want your decisions respected? What are you working on as a leader? If you've just arrived in a new role, chances are there are things you're not good at yet. You know, uh, you, the, the, our, our P&L is really complex. I have a lot to learn. I, I'm going to need your help. Or I, I can be really impatient sometimes. I know that I used to make decisions that could be really quickly implemented, that in this job can't be. I, I may be impatient. I need your help with that. I need you to call me on it. You know, so letting people know what you're working on, um, especially if, if, in fact, you want them to give you access to their vulnerabilities and weaknesses so that you can help them grow, uh, model that for them by allowing them to have input into your development. Um, so it, you establish trust. Talk about the fact that, look, you know, the fact that we've known each other for so long doesn't mean we now trust each other in this new uh, arrangement of our relationship. I don't want to make any presumptions about that. Are there ways I need to re-earn your trust? Um, or here are some ways I think you need to re-earn mine. Um, okay. and, and getting all that real clear on the front end. And then, you know, every so often, um, check in. You know, saying, hey, when we chatted, you know, six months ago or three months ago, we talked about the following kinds of things that we wanted to do differently or do together. How are we doing on that? Okay. Um, and, and let them know that the redefined relationship is important enough for you to actually check it on and see if it's going the way you committed to. Okay. Reminds me of a story. These were two senior executives in one of my client firms. Um, and uh, the younger guy had suddenly been promoted to the boss. And in fact, the older guy had recruited the younger guy in so many years ago and been his mentor and all those sorts of things. So now this is really awkward. You know, your mentor becomes your, I mean, your mentee becomes your boss. And the older person said to me, all I wanted to do is acknowledge that it's weird or it's awkward. That's all. Mm. I accept his position. I'm perfectly happy to have him in that. I'm proud of him. I mean, He's going to do a great job. I'm willing to work with him. But could he just admit that, hey, you know, neither of us plan for it to quite go this way? And as you said, talk about it. Just have that honest, candid conversation. You don't have to lay out all the dirty laundry, but to be able to say, so let's talk about our expectations or let's yeah. talk about how this changes the trust or let's talk about what information we can and cannot share, how we're going to work together, that sort of thing. So, all right, so you've talked about the jumbotron jumbotron problem in that everything you do is sort of broadcast. We talked about the need to recontract relationships. Is there anything else we need to keep in mind in these broader roles? Well, I think it's especially the one you just raised, Wanda, about when it's a reverse generational situation where the younger professional rises up and the incumbent leader uh, is now reporting in. Um, and I think that's a very unique situation that requires a very special conversation because now what's at war is the tension between legacy and potential, right? Mm -hmm. So now as an incumbent leader reporting to you, my legacy in this organization may have to be making you into a better boss. Um, and your potential may be um, predicated on my legacy. And so rather than seeing those things at odds, which often the younger leader feels like they have to sort of overcompensate for the lack of experience and the weirdness of leading somebody more experienced. And the, and the incumbent leader feels resentful that they're having to report to somebody and take direction from somebody with half their experience and half their knowledge. And so talking about 
the fact that there is this tension between my legacy and your potential, um, that really we need each other. That for me to still have a thriving career and finish strong and make the impact I want to make, um, and for you to reach the potential that somebody saw in you to put you in that job, you need me. Mm-hmm. How are we going to support each other uh, in the face of you, probably what is your terror to have this job and my disappointment that I don't? Right, right. Well, and sometimes I think if people feel like they're going to be treated humanely in this one, that they figure out what the boundaries are and how to make it work, it's less of a problem that we might have anticipated. It's the lack of the conversation, though, that gets in the way. Now, Ron, what if these some of these changes now suddenly also involve gender or other diversity so that historically male-led organizations, suddenly we have a younger female lead, which I'm seeing happening a lot these days. In my experience, Wanda, women are just better at this. Um, <laughs> they, this this skill set comes more natural to them. They're they're more they're, they're more credible when they do it. Um, it's they're more inclined to want to do it when they're coached to. And so, in my experience, um, now the thing that I've um, and I in my book, Leadership Divided, I spent a lot of time talking about uh, women in leadership. Um, and, and the important back then, when it was still women, very you know, in male-dominated environments, um, how do you maintain being a female, being and not give up your femininity? So often we we saw the tragedy in the '90s of women who wanted to rise up to the C-suite, um, and and they forfeited being a woman to do it, um, and it was uh, it was so sad to see that loss. And I think many women. Um, you saw this in MLK. He had Xerox and other women who were reaching the CEO job, reclaiming their womanhood. And um, in in my book, Leadership Divided, I quote a great speech by a CEO saying, "You know, guys always say to men, be a man about it. Well, I'm telling you, when you get angry, when you get frustrated, when you get inspired, when you get energized, when you get whatever you are, be a woman about it." Okay. It was a beautiful speech, um, and I think I, you know what's frustrating for me, Wanda, is we don't need any more research. The data has been compounded by the year. That shows when when you have gender diverse leadership teams, those companies outperform their competitors by non trivial factors. Um, when you have gender diverse organizations, those organizations outperform competitors. Um, so if I'm a if I were a board member and I was looking at a leadership team that was a bunch of white guys and one token female in HR, I would ask that CEO. So apparently you're not committed to making us perform as a company to our best ability. Apparently you're not committed to our shareholders the way we tell them we are about driving their returns. Because if, I, if you were, I would see a more gender-diverse team here. So what, is it, what else are you working on that's getting in the way of the fact that we, we, we have all the research we need that tells us that a gender-diverse leadership team would, would set us apart competitively? You don't seem to want that. So tell me what else you're working on that's more important. Ron, I love it. That's fabulous. I have to repeat that. So board members, ask your CEOs who do not have a gender diverse team, what is it that you're committed on that since clearly you're not committed to performance? I love that. That's fabulous. Let me go back to your comment about how to maintain femininity. You know, this is a comment I hear all the time. I work with a lot of women leaders who are doing a great job in many ways and more to go. Any particular advice about how to maintain that femininity? Well, you know, so I think I think one of the things I wrote an article in Forbes about this about what women make great executives, and I did it. So when I, when my ten year study came out, um, people said, you know, across any of the data, did you find any significant differences 
in gender, and the data wasn't cut that way. But I decided I was so curious and I wanted to know, so I went back and looked at the four factors we found in our research, and I compared them to all of the literature that suggested what, the nat- what are the natural um, strengths women bring to leadership, and, and indeed they correlate, right? And so, um, I, I, you know, uh, how women create networks of relationships, how, how decisive they are in making choices, um, how, how naturally predisposed they are to broader stories, so breadth and context. They're much, women are much more naturally entrepreneurial. They're much more resourceful than men naturally are. And so there are already natural inequalities. Maybe not every woman has them all, but I would certainly want to see women leveraging what, what they're already good at um, and making sure that none of the predispositions to, um, to quiet your voice or to abstain from speaking or to second-guess your own motivations or validity or your own imposter syndrome that maybe you've imposed because, you, because of either your gender or some other lack of experience to make sure those are not getting in your way. Okay. Um, and, Great advice. You know, if, if, there's, if there's been any narrative in your head that said, if I'm going to win with them, I have to be like them. Um, and so you find yourself trying to be more aggressive or trying to be more assertive or trying to be more um, declarative in your voice. Um, and, and you know on some level it feels contrived, it doesn't feel good. Own that and be honest about that and stop um, because it's not going to make you – it's not going to sustain your career any longer. And, in fact, it could derail it. Okay. I love that. So if there's any narrative in your head that says if you want to win with them, you have to be like with them, own that it's there and stop it so that it's getting back to being the best person that you can be along the way. All right, Ron, we're going to take a break. With me today again is Ron Carucci. As you can see, Ron has lots of opinions about what it takes to take to get out of the comfort zone and particularly lead in broader roles. And I just highlight one of the big things for me in this one is learning to renegotiate the relationships that are around you. People who had one relationship with you now may not be able to sustain that same level. We go from being a peer to being a boss or being a competitor, even with somebody who used to be a mentor and renegotiate that contract is one of the big issues for here. So now we're going to take a break. Um, The book I'm recommending from Ron today is Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. When we come back, I want to shift the tide and I want to talk a bit about how do you use the power that you now have in a really effective way. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm with Ron Carucci today. Ron is a consultant who's worked with every company it seems to man. Lots of very senior exec CEOs and senior executives in organization around issues of organizational transformation in every capacity you can imagine. The book that I am touting today is Ron's and Eric Hansen's book called Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. And Ron has turned his attention on the last couple of years to his passion, which is about ushering in the next generation of leaders and helping create a genuinely multi-generational workplace. So rising to power is that lovely word power. So here you are, you've taken on a broader role and you do indeed have more power. So Ron, let's talk about that power. You have some surprising data about the abuse of power. Tell us what you found. Power, you know, the, 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 the ability to make choices that come with your position or other forms of power. We, we isolated three forms of power and that was relationship, information and positional. And we assumed we would find all of the traditional abuses of that power for self-interest or self-gain, uh, for immoral uh, or unethical use, or for just, you know, you know flagrant self-interest. Certainly those were there, but they were not nearly um, the most predominant abuse of people's power. The, the greatest abuse of power we saw by a, by a factor probably of two was the abandonment of it. Leaders rising to positions so uncomfortable with the power that came with that role and with a new set of relationships and uh, access to information, they just simply chose not to use it at all um, because they were too afraid of the implications of it, too afraid of failing, too afraid of how others would perceive them, and too afraid of disappointing people. Um, and typically in organizations, we write those abuses of power off as development needs. Oh, she just needs to get a little more confident, or he, he's a little indecisive because he likes to be thorough, or yeah, he just needs a little bit more of a backbone. He'll get his, his skin thickened over time. Um, and we dismiss them as though they were excusable because they're, you know, versus the he embezzled money, he, he had an affair, you know, the things that make the headlines. And we see those as far more heinous abuses of power than the abandonment of power but the reality is both are equally destructive to performance. They both have equal consequences to organizations. Uh, when a leader doles out so many yeses to people, requests for resources or priorities because he doesn't want to say no and disappoint them, he cripples the organization from being out of focus and gain traction. Okay. Um, so so um, leaders are not prepared for the, to, 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 to steward the, the significant degree of power and influence that comes when they get bigger jobs, and, and, they, can, and they need to prepare for that in advance. Okay. All right, so I have to ask how, but can you give me an example? So you've given some examples of where comments are made about the individual, like they need more confidence or a thicker skin. Can you give me a, an example of how this shows up and is destructive? Yeah. So, you know, uh, for example, if I now um, have access to a lot of information, um, that I didn't have previously, um, and I'm. Uh, it's very um, 
uh, you know, controversial information, um, uh, and I and I I indiscreetly share it. I start currying favor with people, and I collude with them to say, "Hey, you can't tell anybody this, but just so you know, here's what's happening next week." Um, and I think that collusion and that gossip is just innocent, you know, office gossip or chatter. Or I got, I got my buddies, my, my my kitchen cabinet, my in crew, so I can I, you know I can trust them as if they're not going to go out and share with people or, or do the same thing I just did to them. Um, you you can wreak havoc on an organization, right? Right. Um, Certainly. You can be counterdependent. So, you know, in relationships, the, the self-interested people will, will exploit you and use you. But, but the, the power abandoner will become codependent with you. You know, I'll be so convinced you need me and that I need you um, that I'll, I'll, I'll ignore your development needs. I'll ignore your shortfalls. I'll excuse, the, I'll excuse poor performance because, you know, we're buddies. And so that, that codependence um, or the other, other one is counterdependence. I'll act like I don't need anybody. Right? Those relational gaps are abuses of power in the relationships you have because of the role you're in, just as much as if, as if I exploited people or blackmailed them to get what I wanted. Okay. All right. I see that one all the time. And you see that with somebody who picks sort of a protege to follow them in a particular position of power. And having picked that person now cannot see the shortfalls in their character or in their ability to lead and they just never take action on it. And boy, does that become a problem. See that well, all you, the time. You assume that, you, you, I mean, and you can hear the, the leaders justifying it as, well, not everybody's perfect, and they're coming along, and I'm coaching them, and they justify it, and they don't realize on the Jumbotron what that looks like and how it has become a distraction to the organization and it has become a source of conversations at dinner at night and, re, and growing resentment and eroding performance um, that you're never going to hear about. Yeah, yeah, I can see that one. All right. So you said you have to be better stewards of power and you have to prepare for it. So how do we prepare? Well, for example, um, look. so start by looking at the, the impact you can have, right? So part of what positional power allows you to do is to create justice, right? So inevitably you will arrive into a role where there are things – there are organizational injustices you, you now have the ability to correct if there are resource allocation processes that are unfair or um, expectations of people's roles where they don't have the authority, but they have the responsibility to get something done, and they're frustrated by that. Um, reward systems that are grossly inequitable. Um, uh, information movement systems that disproportionately put information into the hands of people who need it less while keeping it out of the hands of people who need it more. These are all injustices. What we know about a sense of unfairness in organizations is that when somebody says that's not fair, that is the predecessor to unethical behavior. Because when people feel wronged, they feel entitled to take. And so your ability to now bring justice, to right wrongs, to right past mistakes um, of your organization, to shift a culture that may be harsh towards certain kinds of people or certain kinds of performers, um, or unfairly... Um, uh, favorable towards certain kinds of people or performance. Your ability to write that, to bring balance to that, not certainly not every single one of them, because there'll be way more than you can attend to, but you have to find the ones that you believe are the most important ones to address and use your power for a greater good. That's okay. when your credibility, the respect you have, and your ability to influence even great, greater levels of performance will prevail. The relationships you have now, the ability to invest in people, the ability to, to help develop people, you have the ability to now bring out the absolute best versions of people. 
if you win their trust and regard, if you, if you captivate them with a vision for where you want to take the organization or for the challenges you're about to take on, um, they'll give you levels of themselves they might not give other people. And in so doing, you invite them to you know, exceed even their own expectations of their ability to contribute and perform and have them become even better than they imagined. Um, and informationally, you have, that, you have the power to change minds. You know, as a thought leader, as somebody with access to information or access to perspectives, you can now influence people's narrow-mindedness or people's stubbornness or people's inability to see, you know, if you're in supply chain, to see marketing not as the enemy. If you're in, um, you know, sales, to not see marketing as the enemy. Um, if you're in R&D, to not see innovation as the enemy. But you now have the cha- challenge to change perspective of, of how people see themselves and other people, about how people see problems you're facing or to see customers as, um, a, in a different way or to see your industry in a different way. Um, and so the information you have is transformational, if you use it that way. So each of our power sources brings with it um, very impactful opportunities. You have to understand that it's your responsibility and your job to use it that way and then set after the ways you're going to do it. Okay. All right, so now some of this takes some careful analysis and some thoughtfulness about what really matters to me, and then it takes. It strikes me as it takes courage. Mm. It absolutely takes courage because, you know, um, one of the things I tell executives, uh, you know, when, they under, when they're thinking about their own leadership, I, I remind them that the definition of leadership is really the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> disappoint and people at the rate they can absorb. Okay. If, you're, if everybody is happy in your organization with what you're doing, um, you're probably not doing your job. Okay. Um, if people are not getting, uh, you know, no's to their request because you've said yes to other places, if their focus is not narrowed where you want it, if they're not being um, challenged and pushed, uh, if they're not being given honest feedback about the places where they um, need to grow, and feeling some degree of discomfort for some reason at all, that means you've probably misused your power by abandoning it. And so it does take courage. It does take courage to withstand some of the blowback you're going to get. And you know what? Some of the choices you make may prove to be unsuccessful. So they'll be, you're going to skin your knees. Uh, the question of when you skin your knees or when someone in your, in your organization skins their knees because they followed your direction, that's the real test of, of, of courage and character because who will you be then? If you retreat back to safety because something didn't go well um, or don't take the opportunity to learn from uh, some misguided assumption you made or some miscalculated risk um, and, and then forge ahead, then you really miss an opportunity to shape an organization's courage to collectively to, in the face of pressures and setbacks to press on. Okay. I love that one. All right. So part of preparing is being thoughtful about the kind of impact I want to have from a positional power being able to correct injustices from a relational power, being able to invest in people from an informational power to being able to change minds. And it takes courage to do this. Are there other ways to prepare or other things we should keep in mind in order not to avoid abandoning power? Well, I think it's a, you know, um, one of the other lenses to look through the opportunity is what does the organization need? So there's what your personal causes and your personal values and passions are certainly a very important set of factors. But, but the organization may be struggling, may be suffering from some of these uh, needs where information has been withheld or injustices have prevailed too long, and, and the organization is suffering. 
um, you know, many leaders inherit a mess. They walk in from the outside or into a new department from across some other part of the organization, and it's, and it's you know, it's in smoldering ruins. Where do you start? And so, you know, ordering your battle to, you know, to, to extend out over years, not months, and keep the art of the long view in mind is really important. But, but you know, prioritize your options, not just against your own convictions and your own passions, but against the greatest needs of the organization. What will, what will accelerate performance and impact in the market and results the quickest? Because, again, there'll be certainly way too many opportunities to ch- for change that you can take on. So you're going to have to pick and choose those battles very carefully. And knowing where the lowest hanging fruit is, where the, your greatest impact might lie on behalf of the organization is also a, an important part of the analysis you talk about. Okay. All right. So anything else, anything you can ha- say that's we've said a lot about how to get more comfortable with the power. Any other advice you think this can help us get more comfortable with this notion of power? I'm really struck by the fact that people abandon power. Um, that well, they it, fail it, so to much use of it, it is rooted in our fears, right? So if you already know you're predisposed to not like conflict, you're predisposed to um, need others to like you, um, you're predisposed to collude or gossip, or you like to be, you like to curry favor with people or buy their loyalty by using intimacy with you as a currency. Um, but it's not a new issue. You know it now, right? So just recognize that those don't age better with hierarchy. They only get worse. Um, you, you, you have triggers, right? We all have them. And, and there are certain kinds of conditions and pressures and certain kinds of people that are going to push your buttons. Um, if you're predisposed to being moody, uh, as a middle manager, as a senior executive, you'll you cast a dark cloud over a whole organization. If you're predisposed to being impatient uh, as a middle manager, as a senior manager, you're going to leave a wake of bodies behind you in the pursuit of results. So you've really got to, to do some deeper self-examination uh, of who you are, um, what, your, what, what are the narratives in your head that shape, shape your choices. We all have tapes in our head. You know, there are moments we all say the words, why do I keep doing that? Well, now it's time to actually get an answer to the question, because there are reasons you do that thing you keep telling yourself you're going to stop doing, and they're not random. Uh, and the narratives that are shaping those choices will only get louder in the face of pressure in a bigger job. Uh, and you'll push the button even more, and you may have those reactions or those choices or freeze up or whatever the button is in ways that are far more public and far more destructive. So if you haven't done the work to understand what are your proclivities for influence and relationship and power, what are the triggers that push your buttons that bring out the darker sides of you, the less good versions of yourself that you worked hard to keep hidden, um, now is the time to do that work. Uh, waiting till you're in the job to start doing that work is probably a little bit dangerous. We certainly see the consequences of that on way too many occasions. All right, Ron, we're going to take another break here. I'm talking with Ron Carucci. The book we have been mentioning all along is Rising to Power. There are many others that are fabulous. And as you can tell, John, Ron has some fabulous research in understanding how people abuse power, not by being unethical and overusing it for self-interest, but by abandoning it, failing to use it for solving problems for the organization. And I just want to repeat the three that strike me as so powerful, using positional power to right injustices, using relational power to invest in people, and using informational power to change minds, not abandoning a cause, but taking it on. When we come back, I want to talk about this lovely problem of self-doubt, the imposter syndrome. We'll be right back. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Ron Carucci. Ron has lots of experience around the world working with exceptional CEOs and executives on organizational transformation. His current passion is about ushering in the next generation of leaders. And his most recent book out of eight is Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. We've been talking about two of the challenges of rising out of your comfort zone to a more senior level. One of those is this notion of the breadth and the ways in which that changes what you say and how it's interpreted. It's on a jumbotron now, as well as changing the relationships around you. We've also been talking about power and that the biggest challenge with having more power is not overusing, it's actually underusing it. So to think about how you use that power to do things like right injustices in the organization or invest in people. Now I want to talk, Ron, about the other dark side that we come to which is that notion of self-doubt. And you know the classic scenario. For most everybody I work with, they finally get that position they've always wanted, they've been dreaming about, they've been planning for for ages, hoping for for ages. It's more complicated than you quite expected, and you start wondering if you can actually do it. So in your work, how common is this? No, I, I, you know, I, um, I, I, don't know, I don't know when that doesn't happen. Um, and of course, some, some skepticism can be healthy, right? So you, it keeps you from being impulsive or reactionary or um, overly belligerent in your choices when you get into a position. But it's when the when the self doubt becomes consuming, when you really when those narratives in your head start to project those on other people. You know, they're all thinking you're a failure. They're all assuming you're gonna you know you're gonna tank. That they become really toxic. Um, so I you know I think we, we all are we all have narratives in our head that. We, we have inner critics, right? They point a finger at our at our flat sides. They point and and they love to amplify um, all the places where an imposter and we're going to get found out and where our failure is inevitable. 
some people way overcompensate for that, you know, in their narcissism by screaming louder at how great they are. Um, some people indulge those inner critics too much and, and freeze up. Um, but we all have, you know, narratives inside our head that compete with reality, that compete with what's actually happening. Um, and we have some already conditioned way we respond to those things. Some are healthy, some are not. Um, the unhealthy ones include really unfair comparisons, right? So we start looking around and making everybody else the yardstick and then beating ourselves with it when we compare ourselves to people we could never measure up to. So I tell leaders, gosh, if you're going to compare yourself, at least compare yourself to a, a decent peer set. At least give yourself some pace horses that's a reasonable comparison so you can catch up and, and figure out if there are people you want to emulate, then figure out how to do it. Um, and the other one is, is we project, right? So when we start uh, uh, imposing our self-doubt onto other people and assuming that they share our, our self-critique, assuming that they're starting by looking at us as less credible, then we start to behave that way. We start to second-guess our choices. We start to hem-haw in our, 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 our sentences and how we express ourselves. We look like we're bumbling because we believe people expect us to, and then we fulfill the prophecy. So you've got to be very, very careful uh, to not, um, you know, um, uh, indulge those comparisons or too much or those, those uh, critiques too much onto other people. And the last one is, you know, you, you, you do have flat sides, right? You do have um, embe- uh, um, areas where you're, you're not perfect. Don't embellish them in your mind, just but lean into them, right? You, you obviously bring a set of strengths. You bring a set of talents that are unique to you, that got you into the job in the first place. You didn't fool everybody. So there must be some reason you're in the position and role uh, that has merit. Um, be, you know, honest self-assessment about both sides of the ledger is probably the greatest combatant to self-doubt. Because our inner critics are liars. They don't have the truth, right? They, they embellish one side of a story. And so the only sure antidote to a lie is the real truth. Okay. Uh, that's interesting is this notion that I love your thing that people compare themselves to somebody who had a lot more years of experience was just different in every way and it's not a good comparison set and so that if you're going to insist on comparing yourself to somebody else at least get a peer set so you got a chance to measure up or pick out the pieces of people that you want to really um, emulate or copy and stay with those pieces not necessarily the entire thing but I also exactly. like the solution. And also recognize that there's probably somebody's comparison set you're on, right? Yeah. Um, go find somebody to help, right? If somebody is struggling in an area that they're, you know, unfairly comparing themselves to you in, go coach them. Go, go be of help to somebody. Because one of the greatest ways to see the truth about ourselves is to see ourselves through the eyes of somebody we've had impact on. Okay. And rather than sitting and wallowing, wallowing in your own self-deprecating nonsense, um, go be help, go help somebody who's struggling with theirs and have impact on their life um, and see that the real merit of your being where you are is your ability to have impact someplace else. Okay. So, and I like the notion that the more healthy way of doing this one is to do an honest evaluation, as you said, of the ledger, what's on the positive side and what's on the negative side and be honest about it. Now, I often find people have to find help somebody else who helps them do that because that inner critic just sort of weighs so heavily on those negatives in these cases that they can't get an honest evaluation. And, and I mean, listen, we're, we're, two things about us as humans, we're notoriously horrible observers and assessors of our own reality. That's just by, that's human nature. 
so um, self-development is not a self-activity, right? Self-improvement is a group activity. Um, you have to have the eyes of others. I've I, I, always been fascinated by the fact that we're unable to see our own faces, right? Um, we need other people to read our faces to tell us what they see. Um, uh, you know, and that's you know, the, the, the metaphor of a mirror, right? Seeing how we appear in the lives of others. And so you need data. You need honest feedback, honest people's perceptions of how they experience you uh, as a leader, as a friend, as a colleague, as a, you know, as a husband or a wife. Um, and, and you need to look at the report card and, 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 and see that the collective data of other people is a little bit more reliable than just your own assessment. But you have to have data, um, and you should want it. <laughs> I tell my um, clients all the time, look, imagine you were leaving some very – uh, um, very formal dinner party uh, with your significant other one evening. You, you decide to leave a little bit early. And you get in the car, and your significant other turns to you and says, Oh, honey, you've got a big thing hanging off the end of your nose. It, it's been there all night. Get it off. <laughs> you, you, you might have a question for him or her. <laughs> yeah, right. Tell me now. <laughs> <laughs> All of us. Yes, where were, were you when I needed you? Right. Can't see. All right, fair enough. I do see Everybody that. I see that the people who tend to rise higher in the organization are most willing, eager to hear any feedback they get. Now, they're pretty good filtering what they're going to take and what they're going to reject and what they're okay with. I'm like, fine, that's a decent enough picture. But they just ask it for it and get it and get it and get it and get it and take it. And you know what? They're the most trusted, the most credible, and they get the greatest levels of performance out of people because, of, because people think of your modeling this. If you're working on you, I should want to work on me. Mm-hmm. But okay. when I see you saying you want to work on you and not doing it, that gives me the excuse not to try. I'll use Thanks. your hypocrisy as a reason to justify my, uh, my inertia. Yeah. And hence, we have why leaders want the organization to change around him or her, as opposed to they change with it. Um, exactly. I've often done with people time, who are we? having. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying. I was just agreeing with your point. We see that all the time. Mm. Yeah, I've often done with people an exercise where they're having massive self-doubt about their capability of doing a job. To write out for me what it was the person who did it before that did so well at it did. What was it that made them good at that job? And let's turn that into an objective set. And sometimes that demystifies that the other person wasn't perfect in everything, but we get a list of attributes now or actions or behaviors that are going to lead to success by some standard. And then to go back that that list now becomes your evaluation criteria. Well, where are you strong and what do you need to work on? And it takes that out of the I can't make it, I can't make it general statement into Right, I can do nine out of these. I got to go work on this one. Yeah, I love it. It's a great exercise. One day, it's a powerful one, and it helps. It helps disempower the ghosts, right? Um, yeah. I, I find that if I can get access to the ghosts uh, that are haunting my clients, sometimes they go much further back than just the lat, my predecessor, right? Um, right. But if I can sometimes have the, I have them write letters to the ghosts and confront them. Um, one guy that I work with. Um, uh, I, I was the third coach in a series of coaches. We typically we would, we would say, uh, okay, well, we're not going to take this on because clearly we don't do last-ditch efforts, so I'm not yeah. really interested in coming in and salvaging what you should have done is terminate him. But this, in this particular case, this was a very 
um, value technical talent for the organization. They, they could not depart with it, but he was having this. He was from a different culture, and so I thought maybe that was the issue. But he'd been in the U.S. for 35 years, so. But he was triggered by. Um, so he was mean and blustery and blunt and a little bit a little bit afraid at the edges with most people he led. But this one particular person, he was had unique contempt for, just really out and out contempt for this person. And I was surprised that no one had ever raised the question of, well, do we know why? Do we know why this person gets <laughs> is so fortunate to get the worst of him? Um, because that's not random. Right. And so we began to dig, dig a little deeper to find out wh- why. And, and, and you know, he was he was forced to hire her. Um, he didn't want to. She was a main one of the succession pulled to take his job. He didn't like that. Um, so I thought, okay, you might resent that, but that doesn't warrant the kind of behavior he's showing toward her. So let's dig a little deeper. We'll come to find out. Um, the trigger was, you know, he had been through a horrible divorce years before, a very betrayed trade marriage with a woman just like her. Uh-huh. Um, so she was triggering that. And, and then I said to him, I, I'm guessing your ex-wife wasn't the first. I'm guessing you learned to, to be drawn to women that push these buttons in you much sooner in your life than her. This is, these are just more examples of refining it. So when this direct report showed up, uh, you had really mastered how to respond to women like that. Um, uh, and once we understood that, we could, un- we could begin to unravel that narrative, understand what it was about her that brought out such horrible behavior and what it was he didn't trust and what the, what the wounds were that were, you know, bringing out such behavior that he himself admitted he didn't value um, and just had, dis- had dismissed and denied their impact of it. And so sometimes yeah. if we don't go digging for the, those ghosts, those people who were, you know, are you know, the voices. Those voices inside our head aren't random. They didn't just appear there. Right. They belong to people in our story right. somewhere. <laughs> um, and if we don't, I love that. I love that. We don't, we don't go back and find out whose voices they are. They're going to stay there, and 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 their reign will continue. Okay, I love that one. Um, I worked with a psychologist once who said, you know, the voices inside your head are the ones that you put there. And you have some control over what you do with them, and that's what we're saying. They're not random. They are somebody's. They came for some cause, and it's a matter of pulling them out and looking at them and exploring them. Ron, sadly, we are out of time because I think we could go on and on and on about some of this. These are three very powerful topics. This notion of understanding how others are going to interact with you differently as you take a larger and broader role, the jumbotron idea as well as the need to renegotiate the boundaries of relationships that have been longstanding. In addition, the power that you now have in your role and the need to be sure that you're not abandoning that power, but that you're using it in the ways that are most effective for organization that address the organization's need, whether it's about information or injustices or development in people. And then this last part is recognizing, I love your opening comment that you don't know anywhere where the self-doubt doesn't happen. The question is how do we keep that from being destructive and involves in leaning into it and looking at the ledger sheet, both the positives and the negatives in a really crisp way, as well as pulling those ghosts out and asking where they come from. Ron, it's a treat to have you on the show. Ron Carucci is my guest. And again, the latest book, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. Ron, thanks very much. Wanda, such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's my treat. And then join us next week for yet another episode. Mark Crowley will be my guest then. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.